and I'm back. This is Rupa. Sorry for my long silence. I needed a vacation. You might remember I was working on Otherhood at night after my day job as a local Boston reporter. It got to be a bit much, but enough of you listened to get me a job doing it full time. Otherhood and I now have a home at PRI's program, The World. Meanwhile, it seems like there's been an onslaught of tragedies. As I record this, it's only been a month since an officer fatally shot Philando Castile in a Minneapolis suburb. But it seems long ago because so much has happened since. The truck attack in Nice, the presidential conventions. But there are people for whom these words still echo. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Please, officer, don't tell me that you just did this to him. The first time I saw the video of Philando Castile dying as his girlfriend narrated a live stream, it reminded me of the morning after my dad died, when I woke up shocked that the world could possibly continue the same way. I went to Minnesota a week later when Philando was laid to rest. It wasn't my first time there. I was a public radio reporter in the Twin Cities from about 2010 to 2014. Like many outsiders, I soon learned how proud Minnesotans are of their grit and progressiveness. They're also proud of their history as a haven, first for African Americans from things like Jim Crow segregation, then for desperate refugees from across the world. More recently, though, Minnesota's liberal spirit has been tested. Police relations with minority communities have been tense. Like other states, there were questionable police shootings of black men in Minnesota long before cell phone video. I attended press conferences with grieving African-American families that seemed to follow the same sad script. To give you a sense of what the atmosphere was like, I want to play a bit of a story I did in 2013 about the family of an unarmed black man in St. Paul. Police thought he had drugs and blocked his car. They shot him when they say he tried to ram them and pin down an officer. A year later, his family was still reeling. They said my dad was burning and down there where the devil at. But like, that's really not true. He's up in heaven. And I know that for a fact because he was a good person. You know, I wrote people, I called people. And you know, some people just turned me down or didn't respond. St. Paul Police spokesman Paul Paulos says he doesn't know if the St. Paul Police Department has ever reached out to members of Gaddy's family. In most instances, a lot of families don't talk to the police after an incident like this. Now, depending on what the family wants or how they want to close it, uh, or closure would be totally up to them. So all that is to explain why Black Lives Matter resonated so strongly in Minnesota. At the same time, Muslims in Minnesota have been living in the increasing glare of government scrutiny as young Somalis left to join terror groups abroad. Now young Somali Minnesotans feel targeted twice over. Technically, we have it double as bad because we're Muslim and black. That's Filson Ibrahim. Her generation of Somali Americans are the first of their kind, and they're coming of age. Many are defying long-held beliefs about black people and finding a new American identity in the Black Lives Matter movement. This episode is about how they're uniting some immigrant and African-American communities for the first time. In this first part of the episode, we'll talk to Filson and another member of Black Lives Matter, Nima Omar. 
We'll also hear from my friend and fellow reporter Mukhtar Ibrahim. He's had to balance being part of a community and reporting on that community. And it's been tricky. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Otherhood. Minnesota churches and nonprofits found a home for thousands of families displaced by the Somali Civil War. For Filson Ibrahim's family, that home ended up being in a small, slightly remote, very white Minnesota town. Which I joke that it was kind of a kind of a hellhole, but I don't know how appropriate that is. <laughs> but it is it's somewhat true because for an outsider like they don't make it easy. We're in a room with a bunch of Filson's friends at Augsburg College, where she's working on an environmental studies degree. Filson's 27 and small, like me, with a hijab tucked into a jean jacket. They like let you know how you don't belong in this community and how you need to go back. And yeah, it's a challenging space to grow up. How did you deal with it? We just had a very tiny community. Like I grew up in townhouses, so majority of the people that lived around me and my neighbors were Somali. But yeah, we just held it down, like whatever we needed. We took care of each other. Like we were transporting our kids to high schools. We would like shop for each other. We would check up on each other if like our parents were working. So we were just our own community. And then what happened? And then we moved up to the cities in 2008. That's about the time things started to dramatically change for Somalis in Minnesota. Dozens of young Somali men left or tried to leave to join a terrorist group in Somalia. In response, the Justice Department created a program to identify youth at risk of radicalization. And that's where the problem comes in, because there aren't any guidelines or any, like, proven data of who or what a radicalized youth looks like. Somali youth felt singled out for scrutiny and suspicion, Filson says, similar to the way African Americans have been feeling for generations. But she says Somali Americans have thought of themselves as different from black Americans and held themselves apart. Having our countries being colonized by the Western civilization, that anti-blackness runs deep with us. A lot of us, a lot of my parents, a lot of like our grandparents think that like being white equals you having power and being black is the opposite of that. So a lot of us have innate hatred for who we are and just generally for black people. I think like that divide and conquer mentality works very well. It has worked and it works very well to this day. Organizations that bring us to America warn us about African-Americans. Like a lot of immigrants that came to America, a lot of us have been told not to speak with or talk to and be weary and like limit the interactions that we have with African-Americans because they tend to be scary, they tend to be violent, they tend to be gang members. So we have the mentality coming in to America. What helped you get there? I had the similar experiences too. That's Wilson's friend, Awali Osman, a Somali-American who organizes a debate league for Somali high schoolers at Augsburg. He's tall and lanky and usually has a big smile. What helped you make the change from you know, what was taught to you and where you are now? That's a good question. It is a good question. That's such a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just unlearning everything that I learned in school. Like every history class that I was a part of in school turned out to be a lie. In America. In America. And then having conversations with other black folks and being friends with black folks and slowly but surely like seeing that, hey, we deal with the same stuff. Like, oh, you go to the store, you get followed, I get followed. 
you have a question in class, the teacher disrespects you or doesn't even take the time to like learn your name, that happens to me. Um, there's a, a great example. Me and my friend were in like a chemistry class, I think, and we're the only Somalis in there. And our our teacher would give us like the opposite, like my paper to her and her paper to me. Didn't even really care to know who was who and would mess up our names and be like, oh, I'm sorry. And we had like, I mean... Ashley's like four different Ashley's with like and Ashley that spells her name with like two E's another one with an G like and then that was all straightened out in their in their brain but like a Filson and a Halima are two are one of the same so you guys like became adults as the the kids going abroad was happening and the Black Lives Matter was happening so yeah it's a good what a time to be alive, right? Like, all these tensions are bubbling up. People are finding who they are and voicing their opinion louder than ever before. Did this help you understand it? I feel like, mm, not understand it, but, like, it made it made it okay to feel what I'm feeling. Like, I was just telling, I was just having this conversation with my sister. Like, growing up, being a minority or being a different group, it's like... Your anger is like a cake, but the frosting is like all wrapped up and pretty and designed. Like you don't really see what's in it. So like you feel, you feel sometimes, like you feel frustrated or angry, but you never know like where or like why this is happening to you because it's all like wrapped up nicely. But having people show up like Black Lives Matter and then say, Hey, this is happening to our community. You're disturbing us. You've been disturbing us. We're not having this. You're like, Hey, I feel that too. Like this is, this is my life. So. We're trying to like unblur a lot of lines and say that we are black because the the system sees us just as that. I mean, technically we have it double as bad because mm-hmm. we're Muslim and black. And I feel like a lot of Muslims are coming to that realization. Education helped Awali evolve his thinking about African-Americans. He took history classes and had black mentors. And then, of course, later on, it helped that, you know, really people can't really distinguish the differences between African and Somalis either. So you know that you, you share a lot of the same struggles. But I also get very defensive, too, because I know that the experiences of immigrants and the experiences of African-Americans are different. Mm-hmm. African-Americans have really had to put up with slavery and, you know, Jim Crow and structural racism hundreds and thousands of years before we came to here, you know. Yeah. I think growing up in a Somali community and where everybody is kind of like you didn't really come with all those packages and didn't really have to do with all those challenges. Uh, so for me, you know, while I see the similarities that we have, I think that we can't really go so far as to say that we're the same, because I think we have to really respect and recognize that we have different sets of struggles and challenges and support each other through that healing process. Well said. So that's the kind of stuff they've been trying to teach their families. Filson says her mom gets it. We have conversations back and forth about Black people and just the state of what's happened to them and a lot at times she has she slips up and she has something very anti-black and she would just she'll check herself or we'll just continue to have the conversations and like a couple of days ago she was talking to her friend and she's like talking about black people and slavery and how that still affects them and I was like hey that was my conversation with her now she's having with other people so it's 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 working out you've changed her yeah slowly changing her but it like 
you know, the ugliness comes out because we're all in this stew of hate. So it's in us, but we're trying to unlearn it at the same time. Filson says it might be best summed up in a song. Tupac, he has a lyric. It goes, if we make it through the night, there's a brighter day. Like, I've been thinking a lot about, like, how America, it makes us think that our problems are our problems only, and we're isolated, and you need to get through your shit because nobody's going to understand you. And I feel like that lyric, that lyric is so powerful because if we are in this mindset that white supremacy makes us believe that we're alone and our problems are only our problems, and if we get stuck in there, I feel like that's where we lose hope. But if we open up our path of thinking, like, hey, I'm alone, but a lot of other people are feeling this. There's so many of us, so we can, like, band up and go through that, that brighter day. Tupac. I wish I could take the pain away. If you can make it through the night, there's a brighter day. Everything will be all right if you hold on. It's a struggle every day, gotta roll on. There's no way I could pay you back. But my plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. Dear mama. On November 15, 2015, as investigators in Paris searched for terrorists who had just killed more than 120 people, Minnesota hit a turning point. This is a video Black Lives Matter Minneapolis posted on Facebook from that night. Whoever took it is with a group of people being held back by police. The camera is aimed across the street. It's dark, but you can see two officers and a form on the ground. Black Lives Matter says that was Jamar Clark lying fatally shot with his hands cuffed behind his back. You dirty motherfuckers! You dirty motherfuckers! Fuck you! Jamar was 23 and unarmed. Police said he had tried to reach for an officer's gun. That was early on Sunday morning. Later that day, Black Lives Matter Minneapolis had an already scheduled mass movement training across town. Nemo Omar was there. Hi, I met her at Somali-owned Afro Deli. It's just down the street from the tall cement apartment buildings called Little Mogadishu because of all the Somalis who live there. We walked down to the 4th Precinct where Jamar Clark was shot, and that's how we occupied the 4th Precinct for 18 days in the cold. Demonstrators set up a makeshift camp around the North Minneapolis police station. Nemo signed up to work on the nightside security crew so she wouldn't miss school during the day. Like Filson, Nemo's smaller statured and covers her head. She's a college sophomore studying poli sci who also works with autistic kids. It was calm and quiet the night she was on duty patrolling the 4th Precinct and a group of men showed up wearing sinister masks. Three were white and one was Asian. Nemo says she could immediately tell they were there to make trouble. Four of them were standing against the fence and I walked up and I said, you need to leave the space. We don't feel comfortable you being here. And he like was swearing like, fuck, you get away from us. Like he was just really heated. So what happened was a couple of us escorted them out and they walked. They walked up the hill and about 50 feet when I stopped, gunshots. Eight, 10, I can't remember it, gunshots. I didn't know what happened. I was like, what, is that fireworks? Like, what's going on? Because I've never heard a gunshot in my life. I, I don't know. And a lot of the community members were like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wesley got shot. So I ran up. 
Wesley was bleeding from behind his knee and his foot. We all took off our coats and we put them on his stomach. His eyes were flipping. And I was like, oh my God, he's going to die right in front of me. Like, I did not know what to do. The first officer shows up with an assault rifle drawn to all of us. And we were screaming, like, we need help. Please get ambulance. Like, we need help. When a couple officers came up to the scene, they started pepper spraying the folks. And there's two brothers, like, literally on the ground by a tree, like, laying there. And they start pepper spraying all of us. Ah, it was... It was like the most unreal moment of my life. I thought it was like in a movie. Like it was so horrible. Like how do you treat people like this that are peacefully protesting out here, you know, working for justice and you're, you're in your and we have two boys like literally bleeding to death? Minnesotans were shocked by the shooting and the possibility of violent white supremacists among them. It was a lot for Nemo to take in. She grew up in an affluent white suburb, never fitting in, but also never exposed to anything like gun violence. Like this work is really traumatizing. It's really, it's, it's so real. And I'll, me being a suburban Somali immigrant, Muslim black femme, like I don't know how a lot of the stuff works, but it just, it's a surreal moment. Didn't your family freak? Yes. <laughs> my brother instantly, so what happened was my friend, as I was a witness, she taped me and she put me on Twitter, went viral. And I got half a million views from AJ Plus, Al Jazeera, like a lot of other news outlets. My brother was freaking out. Why are you there in a space where white supremacists are there terrorizing you guys? And I said, it's okay, right? I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm all right. That's how I told them because I was not leaving the space because my friends were out there as well, so... Minneapolis police said officers felt threatened and the use of pepper spray was justified. According to the alt-weekly City Pages, the shooter, who was white, pled not guilty to assault charges and said in court filings that he fired in self-defense because he was being chased by a, quote, angry and violent mob of black people. Nima went in a new direction because of that night. She joined the Black Lives Matter Minneapolis Communications Committee, a group struggling to spread their message even among people of color. It's very hard. Anti-blackness is real in every community. I definitely would go in the Somali community right now, and I definitely will get a lot of backlash about people saying, well, we're Somali, we're East African, and we're not black, right? And so it's really harder for me to engage in conversations with POC folks than it is for white folks. It's really hard to tell someone in your own community that black liberation and black lives matter because they're telling you, well, it's not our problem. And you would get really disgusting comments I would definitely not like to share, but you would get, well, we're doing this and that. What are they doing? Like, we have to work hard enough to be where you need to be at in this world. And it's like that whole white supremacy mindset, like, if you become better and you work better and you become like the white folk, then you can have your liberation, which is not true. And it's not real for a lot of the folks that don't have those resources, don't have those opportunities. When I walk down the street as a woman, yes, people might, the first thing they might see is my hijab, but the second thing they notice is my skin color. And that's where you got to question yourself. Like my brother, visibly a black man, right? They're not going to care what his religion or his ethnicity is. I think different communities coming together is forcing all of us to have different discussions in our homes. And it's happening. Organizers of the growing, sprawling movement think intentionally about what voices they want to prioritize, even within their own group. So when we have our meetings, we make sure it's always POC, definitely Black-centered, because a lot of our voices a lot of times do not get heard. Growing up, I know how that feels. <laughs> I know how that feels. I know how it can get scary. And so that's why we, we always empower folks that, are, that have not been empowered at all, and possibly never been empowered in their lives. 
Empowering young black organizers has been difficult, though, because of older, more established personalities who claim the same message. It's always co-opting in the community. Black youth are on the front lines not getting recognized for their work. And so then you see the elders coming in saying, well, hey, I'm here. And they take the microphone and they take over. And that's where the black kids stay on the sidelines and say, well, we're not getting recognition and we're not getting appreciated for our work. But when you come into the space because you have resume, because you're a title or you're a politician or because the community folks know you, does not necessarily mean you organized it. And a lot of them pop up last minute and just take over the space and I'm just like. And then there's the challenge of working with the media. Nemo says Black Lives Matter people have had to decide which reporters to trust. A lot of the media in Minnesota, first, they don't ask any of us questions, right? They get feedback of what other folks say, and they don't communicate with us in a, in a professional way. It's, just, it's a struggle. It's a huge struggle when you're reading things that are definitely false, and you know you were there, and you witnessed it firsthand. My friend Lily was carrying wood at the 4th Precinct, and the reporter reported that she was carrying bricks. He said, yeah, they were carrying bricks out here and they had rocks and yeah, and it was really disgusting. I was really upset. And that's why I think a lot of the times we ask media, do not come in our spaces and report false information because they do all the time. That's why I'm like really open talking to POC reporters and journalists because you know how it feels and we all know that the media is not, it's not for us. It's not, it's never, it's not for us. It's never going to be for us. The topic of media coverage kept coming up during my conversations in Minnesota. Many people feel like Black Lives Matter demonstrators are being portrayed as hysterical people who hate police and offer no constructive solutions. Conversations like that made me wonder how interactions between reporters and protesters are influencing the overall portrayal of Muslims and the Black Lives Matter movement. I talked to Mukhtar Ibrahim, who was uniquely positioned over the last year to watch those interactions as a reporter for Minnesota Public Radio's website. The funny thing is when I was doing the reporting on the Black Lives Matter in the Jamar Clark case, I was with two other reporters. One was Asian, another one was white. And one guy came to us and he said to the white lady, you go back to Europe. He, he said, you go back to England. And, and he said to the other uh, Asian-looking uh, reporter, you go back to China. And I was just standing there. He didn't say anything to me. It was just, you know, shocking to hear that from people who are protesting against police brutality. But the distrust of media doesn't surprise him. I mean, yes, I mean, the distrust is out there. I believe the... Black Lives Matter people, they really don't easily trust the mainstream media in general because they feel like it's just reporting the narrative of government, the police force. Mm -hmm. That's why there's this wide mistrust between the mainstream media and, and the Black Lives Matter people. And that's why Black Lives Matter is more open to putting their press releases or their voices out on social media and not talking to the reporters who are mainly white. Mukhtar's tall, well, taller than me, with a shy smile. He was born in Somalia, moved as a child with his family to Ethiopia and Kenya, and came to Minnesota in 2005. Interesting thing, uh, when we left Kenya, I had a copy of the newspaper, Kenyan Daily Nation, 
the largest university in Kenya, and I still have that copy for some reason. <laughs> I had an interest in just, you know, reading the news and following up what was going on. My parents were interested in me going to medical school and becoming a doctor or, you know, that kind of field. And I did well in all my science courses, but I didn't have that, you know, interest or passion. I was reading a lot of reports about, you know, Somalis in Minnesota and the people who were writing were, you know, the community. Mm-hmm. And and uh, some of the reports, you know, were okay. And some reports were really trying very hard to understand the community. But it takes long years to understand. I think, you know, journalism is an important field that can connect to communities, change people's minds. It's very powerful. Like many reporters of color, Mukhtar got into journalism to widen mainstream media's perspective and tell stories with more nuance and insight. He used to come along with me on assignments when I was reporting in the Twin Cities. We can't remember exactly, but we think he was either a freelancer then or an intern still in college. Back then, the meetings between police and Muslim communities were just starting, and they were mostly friendly gatherings where they just got to know each other. After I left, Mukhtar and another incredible Minnesota Public Radio reporter, Laura Ewan, did some groundbreaking stories on young Somali men who had left the Twin Cities to join ISIS. Mukhtar wanted sources as close to the story as possible. He was trying to talk to a friend of the men who left. And that friend, I kept coming back to him several times because he didn't believe that I was a reporter. He thought I was an agent, an FBI person, and I tried my best to convince him that I am actually a reporter, and he kept calling me Mukhtar FBI. I understand, you know, why he thought I was an FBI, because he hadn't seen someone like him writing or reporting or talking to people and collecting stories for a mainstream media organization. So I understand his concern, but the fact that he thought I was an FBI just shows how much suspicion is in the community of informants. It it was very frustrating, but you know, I just kept going back to him and so that he could at least understand that I was a reporter and not an FBI. He eventually understood and he gave me a good interview, which really strengthened the story. Mukhtar was eventually able to talk to one of the guys who had left to fight for ISIS. I talked to him uh, through Facebook. I chatted with him. Oh, shit. I know. It, it was this big story. A lot of people were in denial that this was happening. It just opened a lot of people's eyes. It, it just became the thing that opened the door that it's really happening. But when you start that, you have to be like excited to have a huge story, but at the same time sad that it's happening. Exactly, yes. It's you know, it feels good to break a story, but it also feels bad that you're writing something that will bring tears to families. And also as a Somali and you understand what people are saying and how sad they are. It's sad that someone, a local person who happens to be Somali, left, you know, his life and kids. He had a lot of kids, six, seven, I think. For him to leave his family behind and go and join a tourist group. And then I talked to him and he explained to me why he went there. The idea of establishing a caliphate for the Muslims and defending Muslims in Syria was his main motivation. And that he was not even a religious person when he was here. So that just shows, you know, this is not just about religion or 
as other people portrayed. It's just more than that. I actually declined most of the interviews when that story broke out because I, I thought that, you know, I wasn't adding much to what was happening and my story spoke for itself. And I didn't want to amplify or attract more attention to the community. So I was just trying to let my reporting speak for itself and not add more information that I didn't know or act like a spokesperson for the community or like an expert in this issue because I'm not really an expert. I declined CNN interviews, CBC interviews and all this. And at the same time, you know, you feel like you have to report and not let your emotions get in the way. I mean, that's what you are expected and that's what I did. But there were certain times that it was very hard for me to separate the two. Like when a mother just breaks down in front of you and and you're interviewing them and, you know, a mother like, you know, like your mother. I mean, sometimes you cry. I just felt like it was just hitting me and touching me more than others, of course. My wife wasn't happy that I was reporting terrorism-related issues because she knew that was a very sensitive topic in the community and she didn't want her husband doing all the stories so that, you know, people would think he is an FBI or a bad person writing about bad things. She eventually, you know, understood the importance of, you know, my reporting. I was actually trying to explain what's happening rather than bringing more scrutiny to the community. Eventually, three of the men went to trial. The first day of the trial, I went there a little bit early, like I think 8.20, and I met a fellow reporter from the Star Tribune, and we tried to get in inside the court and pass the security check. And that guy was white? Yes, he was white, and he went through without a problem or anything. He didn't even show his badge. So I went through, and I tried to do the same. As I was doing that, a security guard from the court just came up to me, and he said, the court's not open to the public yet. And I said, I'm a reporter, and I showed my press pass. And he said, sorry, it's not yet open to the public. And just to clarify, your press pass has your picture on it. Yes, has my picture on it, has, you know, the news organization log on it and everything. And I showed it to him. He, he, he didn't even look at it, I believe. I was like, it's not open to the public yet. And I was like, you just let another reporter in. And I'm trying just to do the same. I'm here for, you know, to do the reporting. And he won't take that. So I tweeted what happened, that I was prevented from going in, inside the court. Uh, and that just, you know, exploded. The U.S. Marshal's Office was trying to understand what happened, but I didn't get an official apology until a few days later when another incident happened. Another incident? What happened? I think it was Friday. The first incident happened on Monday, and the second incident happened on Friday. So during the hearing, the trial there was a young Somali man who was testifying against his friends. He bled guilty, you know, like a, few, uh, a year ago or something, and he was a witness for the government. So he was testifying against his former friends who were sitting a few feet away from him. So the courtroom was just very tense. It was just so packed that one person said something to the mother of the witness, and that just created some altercation in the courtroom. And the judge gave us a few minutes of break and people went outside. So I, I did the same. I stepped outside and I had one person saying, you know, your son is spy. Okay. 
and he was saying that to the mother of the of the witness. Keep in mind, these arguments were in Somali, and Mukhtar was the only reporter there who could understand what was going on. So he, they were accusing him of being a spy yeah. for the government, oh. and that just created, you know, some more arguments outside the courtroom. And I was just standing there taking notes on my phone, and the court security people evicted two to three people from the court building. And I was standing there, and then a security person came to me, and he said, you have to leave. And okay, and you said, why? No, before I said anything, another court security person came to him, and he said, he's okay, he's okay. And I had a big press pass at the time. I changed my previous one because it was a little bit small, and I got a bigger one, <laughs> a one bigger than the first one. Um, and I think he saw that, or he might recognize in my face about what happened on the previous day. So this chief of the U.S. Marshals, she came to me and apologized. And I met with the chief judge who invited me to speak to him. And uh, I explained to him about my concerns. And he listened to me and he said, you know, this shouldn't have been happening in the courtroom while you are a journalist. You know, he was upset about what happened. So do you think they learned from the experience? I hope they will learn and be more knowledgeable about the diversity of, you know, reporters and that they should not just assume every young Somali person is a threat. The trial didn't last long. In the end, the all-white jury convicted the men on every count. That was March 2016. And that was just the start of a spring and summer that would bring many more tragedies and challenges. Amidst the disappointment and tension, Somalis and African Americans began to look for new long-term solutions together. That's in part two of this episode. I'd like to include more of your voices. So if you have thoughts or reactions or story ideas you'd like to share, I've set up a Google Voice number to call. 802-526-4763 or 802-520-OH-POD. That's as close as I could get to otherhood. Try to keep the message to just a few minutes, and please start with your name and where you're from. As always, I'm on Twitter at Rupa Shinoy, and Otherhood's on Facebook at Otherhood Pod. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood, now from PRI.